This is the Orange Podcast. Conversations with Orange City Council for the local community. This is Alan Reader. And despite the heaviest falls of snow in Orange for 40 years, you've managed to trudge through the drifts to tune in to the Orange Podcast. More ideas than you've had hot dinners from the people loitering the corridors of Orange City Council. Coming up in this week's episode, what starts out as an innocent attempt by an elderly person to help their family can gradually turn into them being financially exploited. There are more and more older people who are becoming frail, and so most of the abuse of older people takes place around the age of 75 to 85 years of age. And the reason for that is increased frailty, increased dependency, and then for many people, uh, sort of a sliding um, a loss of capacity. And that's um, when people become very vulnerable to the uh, mistreatment by others. A new council program targeting elder abuse, that's coming up soon. Also today, a member of Orange City Council tells her top tips for how to lobby a council member. And what's the potential if the council gave CBD businesses a free website? The answer could be free deliveries on a Friday night. I remember right in the thick of COVID when there was shutdowns everywhere. I had three daughters living at home at the time. And I remember one night we had, and this was all outside hours, we had a delivery of ice cream from a local business. We had some fashion that came from Sonic and we had uh, half a dozen bottles of red wine that came from a local vineyard, all within a f- 40 minutes at home, just one Friday evening. And I thought, wow, you know, that's, that's so much capacity for businesses to tap into that, I think. More on free websites later in the show. But first up today, a council event this week had a man turn up to speak who used to run a royal commission and help lead the Productivity Commission. These days, the focus for high-profile lawyer Robert Fitzgerald is the pitfalls of being an older person in today's Australia. This week, Orange City Council became one of 26 to join up with a new collaborative agency to tackle the problem of elder abuse. In Orange, to help launch the new body, Robert Fitzgerald was keen to talk about how many thousands of elder abuse cases are coming to light and which age groups are the most at risk. So the first thing is we're seeing a, a very substantial increase in people being aware of um, elder abuse or abuse of older people, and our figures are showing that increase. So um, a couple of years ago it was about 6,500 calls a year, then 10,000, and this year about 14, and 75% of those are in relation to older people. So we can see that growth. Um, the second thing we, we know that old, there are more and more older people who are becoming frail, and so most of the abuse of older people takes place around the age of 75 to 85 years of age. And the reason for that is three things, um, increased frailty, increased dependency, and then for many people, uh, sort of a sliding um, a loss of capacity. And that's um, when people become very vulnerable to the uh, mistreatment by others. And uh, that's the sort of profile we're getting. Most reports are from family members complaining about other family members, um, but nevertheless we are seeing a greater community awareness generally. There's still a, a lack of acknowledgement among the community of elder abuse. Why is that, do you think? It's exactly the same as in relation to all abuse areas. We as a community don't want to believe family members um, will mistreat their other um, you know, people they care for. In this case, people don't want to believe that the older children are now abusing their quite elderly parents. But like all abuse, we get used to the fact that it actually is happening. We start to see it, we start to hear it. There are more and more cases on television and media, but also criminal cases. 
Um, the second thing is service providers are really important in this. They go into the families, they go into the homes constantly. So they're starting to be much more attuned to signs. And instead of saying, you know, I'm not sure something's wrong, they're actually now wanting to escalate that matter either through their own organisations or coming to our abuse helpline. Um, and the third thing is we've got a much more active police force now who, a bit like domestic violence in the early days, wouldn't have taken much notice, uh, but now are actively involved. And in New South Wales, we have these aged crime prevention officers, um, which are really helping to educate their fellow police officers. So there's a number of things happening. You talked this morning about the motivation of people who uh, begin to abuse their elderly parents, um, and that gambling might have been just one factor that, that produces that. A lot of abuse in, the, in, in, in older people comes about because the actual care of themselves are under some pressures or they have some addictions and gambling is a big one. Um, there's no doubt that Australia has a huge problem in relation to gambling, one that we won't address. But in relation to elder abuse, it happens in two ways. Uh, the care of themselves is, becomes a gambling addict and a gambling addict um, in, the, in a serious form will simply find money wherever they can get it. And it won't matter who it is. It can be their children, their wife, their their husband, or it can be their parents. Uh, the second thing is there are groups of people, small numbers, who are actually out to deliberately exploit older people, and they target people in uh, gambling venues like uh, poker machine venues and other sorts of things. So gambling is, like in many parts of society's ills, um, a, a bit of a, a, a pinpoint to, to real risk, um, and we, we see that a little bit at the moment. Is there an element of institutional abuse? Uh, just could some of the clubs take a better approach to, to the way they're accepting elderly people as customers? Look, I think institutions take a long time to understand that they have an absolute responsibility to care for the people that, they're, they're, that are either their clients or their residents or their customers. Um, and we believe now that in relation to things like elder abuse, the evidence is starting to become greater and greater. So not only is it about institutions like aged care facilities or home care facilities um, it's, or either health facilities, it's actually about groups where older people come together, congregate, um, yes, they enjoy themselves in some way, but also are at risk. So I think we've got to start to work with all of those institutions uh, that deal with uh, vulnerable older people. If it's a problem that's still very much under the radar, are there particular um, milestones in the life of an older person where the problem can be picked up, where they tend to disclose things? So in relation to men and women, the most important thing is that they remain socially connected. And what we find, particularly for men, is when they leave work, they suddenly disconnect from family, from friends, from other people, and become very, um, in many senses, both lonely and depressed. Uh, for women, that's a little less so. But nevertheless, the big telltale sign when something's going wrong is when a person stops um, being connected in the way they used to be. And, this, and added to that is when there's another person in their life that is starting to take decisions, uh, taking you know not only financial decisions but also decisions about which friends they can see, whether they can leave the home, whether they can actually um, you know get health services. And so the combination of a changing pattern that can't be explained, and the emergence of somebody that's in their life uh, taking greater and greater and greater control, and that can happen to men and women. But, it, it, but the real risk factor is when they are isolated. There's no one to talk to, there's no one to see, there's no one to question, and that's the real danger. And then when someone's, say, about to leave hospital and they're talking to a social worker getting ready or perhaps talking to a, a bus driver, there are times when they will open up. Yeah, look, it's very interesting. All of us have times when we become a little more vulnerable and a little, little more likely to talk about what's happening in our lives. So for older people, one point of connectedness is health. 
but in particular hospital care, if a person's gone in there for a you know a hip break or a um, you know some other illness or particularly an operation, um, they are firstly the people, uh, the family members are not around them as much as they used to be. The second is uh, that vulnerability creates an opportunity to talk and express concerns. And the third thing is older people are not meant to be discharged from a hospital unless there's some discharge plan, particularly to make sure they're going to somewhere where they can be safely cared for. And that's an extraordinarily important opportunity for social workers and nurses and health practitioners to identify issues, but also to have those conversations. And uh, that's a very important area. But some of the other areas that people might not think about, uh, we've seen in domestic violence that hairdressers are a very important point. They talk to hairdressers about what's happening in their lives, and so do older people. Community transport workers are in the car with the older person, and they drop them off and pick them up. Um, and they, over time, see changes in patterns, listen to conversations, hear about concerns. So we're always trying to find those points of connectedness and points where people are likely to disclose and or people are likely to see the signs that something's not quite right. Organisations like Orange City Council are part of this new collaborative agency. Our council's got a lot of different jobs to do, but amongst that there's community services. Are there community workers who can also have a hand in looking out for telltale signs? Uh, there's no doubt at all that local government plays an extraordinarily important role to play. Uh, Local government absolutely understands it has a responsibility for and uh, to older people. Um, and what we see, not only are they important in the services they directly provide, but also they are the catalyst for things like collaboratives and other interagency organisations working together, making sure that there is a, a good working relationship at the local level, also identifying gaps in services and gaps in supports. But the one thing we know about older people is that they still connect locally. They go to the local library, they rely on Meals on Wheels, they read the local newspapers, they even read the mayor's letter. Um, you know, stuff that a lot of us don't do, they do. So council is the ideal level of government to be highly a, a, a big motivator for others and a big motivator for their own staff to be raising the awareness of the issue, making sure their staff are aware of these sorts of signs and being prepared to actually report matters and respond to matters uh, should that be necessary. An average member of the community hears what you've said in today's interview and, and wants to is concerned about something that they might know about. Is there a hotline? What's the best way forward? Oh, look, the best way forward is simply to Google or search for um, um, putting the words ageing and disability abuse helpline. Um, and any of those combinations will work. So just look for the words ageing and helpline and you'll find us. Alternatively, contact the local council and they'll tell you. And there's a lot of community services groups here, including Legal Aid and others, uh, that can put you through to us. We were listening to Ageing and Disability Commissioner Robert Fitzgerald. And the number for the Ageing and Disability Abuse Helpline is 1800 628 221. 1800 628 221. You're listening to the Orange Podcast. The way Orange City Council makes its decisions is one of those mysteries of life that we all figure out eventually. Part of the democratic process, though, is local residents ringing up their council and having a say. It's part of the beauty of local government that it's very hard to do that with the Prime Minister. Um, but when I mean, we've got 20 locals who are on our decision-making body, that's they're as close as the telephone. How do they go about it and are they doing it very effectively? That's the question for today's discussion. Joining me, uh, council, a member of Orange City Council, Councillor Joe McRae. Joe, um, you've recently put up a, a, a post on your Twitter feed 
uh, that spell, give some tips to how uh, for, for locals if they want to lobby a local council to, to encourage them to make a decision in the right way. Why did you do that? So I think one of the main things that, that I find really frustrating is when somebody gives you a call and they're passionate about a particular topic and they haven't really done their homework. Uh, the, the challenge is that, you know, councillors, we often have had hours and hours of briefings on a particular project, its pros, its cons, its history. Um, you know, there are projects on which I've probably had 20 hours of briefings from experts within council and, and sometimes, you know, consultants and experts in the field. And when I get one of these passionate local residents who rings me up and says, I think you should do X instead of Y, my first question to them is going to be, well, why? And, and I think if they haven't done their homework, if they haven't read that plan themselves, or they're just going off what their next door neighbour or their friend has said, it makes it really challenging for me to, I guess, see the value in, in why they're trying to change my opinion. If, if I took on board every single comment um, and changed my mind every time somebody said, I think you should do the opposite, I'd be, I'd be changing my mind like I changed my underwear, Alan. It'd be, it'd be really challenging. And, and as a local government elected official, we're supposed to make informed decisions. And that is weighing up different perspectives. So I guess I, I'd advocate to people that, that the number one tip is make sure you've got the information from accurate, reliable sources. And, and council is certainly one place you can get information. And then maybe looking at, you know, some of those other sources that are out in the community who may be lobbying per, for a particular point of view. So I'm a resident. Um, I've, I've gone along to a community meeting, which is beginning to get organised and get, get active about a particular thing. And they suggest you should ring your councillor. What should a resident do then? Before they do that, they should really do their homework or think it through and move beyond the, the passion of the moment to something else. Yeah, I think, first of all, be well prepared. Really think about who you're phoning. Um, maybe consider when's a good time to call. You might need to remember that a lot of councillors do have day jobs, so you might need to leave a message and maybe suggest a good time to call back. Um, leaving contact details is a really good tip, so you know, suggest that they can give you a call back in the next couple of days. Um, but make sure that if, if your councillor you know, does ring you back or, or they do uh, answer the phone and talk to you straight away, you've got your key points that you want to talk through, but you've also thought about different perspectives. Um, you know, don't don't keep those blinkers on for just trying to advocate for that one particular argument. Have you thought through what some of the different points of view may be and how you'd come up against them? I mean, look, I'll, I'll say, Eleanor, I've got a background as a school teacher and a bit of uni lecturing, and I'm a real fan of, of having facts and information. So, you know, have you actually got the right info, first of all, before you call that counsellor? And have you picked out the things that you've got concerns about and that you want to bring to their attention? Have you done your homework would be the, the way that I'd put it. The other way I'd suggest is that you know, think of it like a discussion. There's going to be two sides. Um, again, I was one of those kids at school, a giant nerd who did a lot of debating. And I really appreciate when you will present me with a well-founded argument with examples that are comparable. Um, I'd suggest, you know, one of the contentious issues when I came on to council was about the airport business park around Orange. Now, that was a really good example where a community, community group got together, but they did the homework. They had done business case information. And look, it was a really contentious issue. But when they lobbied people, and I was lobbied hard... They actually came with, you know, business case, business concerns. They looked at environmental, economic and social impacts. And I'd have to say they did a pretty good job of actually being able to present perspectives that I hadn't 
had that background on. They were able to present a convincing point of view with reasonable arguments. And I'm not sure that I always get that um, when it comes to some of the more recent issues that have arisen on council. And, and in some ways, that's disappointing. You know, councils like a good a good discussion, a good debate. We want to flesh out the issues. We want people to be engaged in democracy. But you've got to come, you know, with your, your quiver full of arrows um, because we're going to have probably some shields up. And, and we're also going to, you know, throw some questions back to you about, well, if we make that change, what would be the impact on, on rates or on future generations paying for that major project? Or what would be the equity issues in relation to making those changes? So we're going to throw some questions back to you. So you've got to actually be ready to think about more than just, you know, I want you to do X. Well, what would be the implications of A, B, C and D as well that are all flow and effects? In a couple of weeks' time, perhaps Soren City Council will make a key decision on the future of some trees out near Bloomfield Park alongside Jack Brabham Park. Um, there's been some uh, community activist groups that are trying to float alternative ideas. As an example of, of what you're talking about, if someone rang you up to say, I think we should build a, a, a parkland out there instead of knocking it, the trees down for a sports ground, you're going to say, um, how much will that cost? Uh, give me a business case analysis for that for, the, for your alternative proposal. Yeah, and I'm going to say, why is a, a green space or a parkland incompatible with open space and playing fields? Um, I'd say, what is an example that you want this to look like? And people have said, oh, we want it to look like Centennial Park in Sydney. And I say, well, Centennial Park has hundreds of sporting fields embedded in it. So, you know, how is that incompatible? And and if you want it to be, you know, an anti-sport place, you want it to be purely, you know, a green space, then how is that affordable for the community? How would it actually, you know, balance the, the council budget? Because I am worried about, you know, what are the operational costs ongoing and, and who's going to fund that? People in Orange, when I say, you know, how are your rates? Would you pay increased rates to have a beautiful 10-hectare side of parkland? And they say, oh, our rates are very high already. And that's my point, is people are complaining about their rates. If we want to increase infrastructure, then there might be a further increase. We need to make keep that in mind, and, and I'm looking at that as, a, as an issue when I'll put back to them, well, what's the business case for keeping that and, and changing the plan? Or can we actually get a... A blended approach, which also considers, you know, that that bottom budget bottom line, and the environmental issues and the amenity. And I also would ask people, you know, I haven't seen the final plans um, because they're being, you know, amended and and they're being changed to reflect. And in this case, it's the Heritage Council their wishes um, in terms of tree removal. So when they say, oh, I've seen all the plans. I haven't seen them yet and I'm one of the key decision makers. So I also encourage people to stay informed and to look at what's coming up for council because that's where we'll see those plans put out to the community and then they can make an informed argument with me about there's still too many trees being cut down, I still want it to be a beautiful parkland and I'm going to have picnics under a radiata pine. Fantastic. I, I appreciate your opinion but we may have to agree to disagree. But look, if somebody came with a business case... That'd be fantastic. Convince me, bring logic, bring data, preferably from independent sources, and, and actually put that to me. And I'd certainly love to have that discussion debate. And you very well may change my mind. It sounds like you've got very high expectations of democracy. I um, do. If, if, which is a good thing. Um, uh, I'm a typical resident. All I've got is my passion. I haven't, haven't thought the issues through as much as I don't have access to, to you know the research resources that will let me build a business case. If someone comes to you with passion and absolutely nothing else, how will you consider that? Look, I certainly would say, look, I appreciate your opinion. Thank you for, for getting in touch. And I'll take all of that into consideration when I'm making my decision. 
But I'm also not a politician, Alan, and, and that's one of the challenges I've had is that I understand they're probably going to change their vote based on who, who you know, gives them the answer they want. And that's one of the reasons I'm not standing for election. I, I want to make decisions that are based on merit and that are based on the benefit of the community for the future. And I'm not going to change it just because you say you, you're going to, you know, change your vote. If you change your vote because of one decision, great. You're an informed member of the democracy and you're going to vote for people who've got the same values and vision as you. If that's not me, that's okay. I can handle that. But I'll thank you for your input and for actually understanding the issue and being prepared to be part of democracy. We're just going to have to agree to disagree. Local government and a look behind the scenes as to how democracy works. Joe McRae, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Alan. Council member Joe McRae. You're listening to the Orange Podcast. The Future City Project has been about helping businesses around Orange get started. Some of that's been about tarting up the CBD in some buildings. Other stuff is happening behind the scenes to find out about one project. Orange City Council's Nick Redmond with us. Nick, what's happening in terms of helping businesses in Orange to get a better online presence, a digital presence? When we started the Future City program, it was very much focused on you know, bricks and mortar and anyone who drives around the city will see lots of activity with building happening, you know, digging up roads and creating new streetscapes. Um, one of the other things we really looked at was trying to help with some of the soft infrastructure as well. So we did an audit of 400 CBD businesses to see what sort of online presence they have. Some do it really well. So there's uh, Sonic up in um, in um, South Street that's, you know, that's a great business. Angus Barrett's another one that have got a really good, strong online presence. Um but there's a f- there's plenty that don't. So we surveyed, um, we we audited 400 businesses. 54 businesses didn't have any digital platform at all. Uh, 75 had not even registered their find my Google my business. So there's those couple of things we wanted to do. So from there we engaged a couple of local uh, web companies to start building websites, and we've signed on. Um, for those two companies to go out and we've identified 20 businesses we're going to give them a digital presence you know a, a you know a pretty rudimentary website to start with but after that we might build some more function for them as well digital presence let's un- unpack that a bit more the ones that are doing it really well angus barrett sonic what does a digital presence mean does that mean they're selling all around the world yeah absolutely some of them are some of them are selling around the world um i remember talking to um they're selling all around the world but they're also selling more locally some of the interesting things I have. So I remember talking to um, Angus one day and he said that people will come in and touch and feel his product. They won't buy anything, but then they'll pop up online buying it later. So they're actually locals that are buying digitally as well. So they, they still people still want to touch stuff and, and that could be true of a whole series, a whole heap of businesses in Orange where, you know, try something on even and then buy it digitally you know when they get home you know the kids are in bed or whatever else and they can do it digitally so the opportunity for businesses to tackle that um, part of the market that they'd be otherwise missing I think is really important. We've heard of chain stores doing that the Harvey Normans and and the other really big stores but you're saying uh, what's essentially a small one-shop business in Orange can do it as well? Yeah I think there'll be a range I think there'll be some businesses that are probably not suited to a full, you know, digital sales capacity. But 
even if they've got a Google My Business so people can find them, even to know they're there, I think it's a really important step to start with. Directions, just at where are they on the map? Where is that new store? Exactly, yeah. You can you can find them on your map, click on them, and then it'll tell you how to get to their store, you know, whether you're walking, cycling, or, or driving a car. So there's a whole range of things. You know, the two businesses I mentioned earlier are really at that high end of, you know, a really digital-focused business. Yeah. but. There's simple things like, yeah, just having a name that'll pop up on Google to tell you where you're going to buy some ice cream, you know. So, so you become an option. You, there's a, yeah. there's a, an, an, a permission that you can, another shop you can go to. Yeah. I think, um, and, and COVID, I think, uh, has really um, shown that digital is very important. I remember um, right in the thick of COVID when there was shutdowns everywhere, I had, um, I've got, I had three daughters living at home at the time. One was sort of a young teenager, one was a you know an eighteen year old and I had one daughter in her early twenties and I remember one night we had um and this was all outside hours we had a delivery of ice cream from a local business we had some fashion that came from Sonic, and we had uh half a dozen bottles of red wine that came from a local vineyard all within a forty minutes. At home, just one Friday evening, and I thought, "Wow, you know, that's that's there's so much capacity for businesses to tap into that." I think. How much are businesses paying for this to get a, a free website? Uh, they're not paying anything for this. So, um, this is part of the Future City program, which we're spending uh, fifteen million dollars over the, the current year and the next couple of years after that. So, we're actually paying for this. That we'll probably spend in the order of around eighty to a hundred thousand dollars to get these businesses moving. So it's a it's a sizable um, investment of community funds, but um, we want retail to be healthy. It's a really big employer in the city, and if uh, one way of um, getting more people to spend locally is through digital presence, then it's a good thing to spend money on. Future City is about the CBD. Other businesses outside the CBD can ask, how can I get my free website one day? Yeah, we're, we're focusing very much on retail because Future City is about CBD and and we hadn't done too much in terms of a renovation of the CBD for sort of 30 years. So um, we'll see how this one goes and um, retail focused and CBD focused for now. But who knows, in, um, in a year's time when we reassess where we've been with this program, sure, we might have a look at, at doing it more broadly. Nick Redman, thanks for your time today. Thanks, Alan. And thanks for joining us for the show this week. Remember, as you snuggle up and keep warm, you can download this show from the Orange City Council website whenever you like or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time for the Orange Podcast, this is Alan Reader. Bye for now.